This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, President Trump has nominated a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died last week at age 87. Her dying wish was to be replaced by a new president. That would be consistent with recent history and the way that President Obama's pick to replace Antonin Scalia was blocked by Senator Mitch McConnell, who famously refused to hold hearings. All week, we have seen senators reverse their previous positions on whether it would be appropriate to replace Ginsburg so close to the election. Trump's nominee is Amy Coney Barrett, the Federalist Society pick, and according to our guest, one of the furthest right nominees ever, and she's seen as another Scalia in her judicial outlook. There's much to explore with this right-wing appointment, including what will happen to the court, and we are very fortunate to have Dina Berkeley Law Distinguished Professor and Constitutional Scholar Erwin Chemerinsky to offer his insights and analysis. We then turn to the Breonna Taylor grand jury decision earlier this week not to charge the three police officers operating on a no-knock search warrant who killed Breonna Taylor as she slept in her own home. One of the officers received a minor charge of wanton endangerment for firing recklessly when he was still outside the apartment, putting a neighboring apartment at risk. So the bullet that missed mattered more than the bullets that killed Breonna Taylor. Protests have erupted in Louisville and across the country demanding justice. And we talked to sociologist Cynthia Gannot at the University of Louisville, who has participated in the 122 days of nonviolent protest in Louisville to get a sense of what is happening on the ground. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. President Trump has now nominated Amy Coney Barrett as the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died last week at age 87. Bader Ginsburg's dying wish was to be replaced by a newly elected president. But Trump and the Republicans move is consistent with recent history and the way that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blocked President Obama's pick to replace Antonin Scalia when he died by famously refusing to hold hearings. In keeping with this, we've seen one after another Republican senators hypocritically reverse their previous position on whether it would be appropriate to replace Ginsburg so close to the election. That position was that it was right to pass up Merrick Garland on the grounds that we should let, quote, the American people decide. In other words, that whoever wins the presidential election should get to make the nomination. Trump's nominee is the Federalist Society's pick, who is seen as another Scalia in her judicial outlook. And we know that the reason that Trump chose her was to give the conservatives a solid 6-3 majority and make certain that they don't have to rely on Chief Justice Roberts and his predilection for keeping the court somewhat balanced to avoid its being discredited. Amy Coney Barrett is expected to follow the Federalist Society on key questions, and we're going to ask our guests about that, the powers of the executive, pro-business program, climate change, LGBTQ rights, gun control, and very relevantly for the moment, the Affordable Care Act, 
and Roe v. Wade. So there's a lot to explore with this appointment, including how it's going to affect the coming election of the presidency and the Senate, as well as what could be done to counter the Republicans' version of packing the court. We're very fortunate to have Dean of Berkeley Law and Distinguished Professor and Constitutional Scholar Erwin Chemerinsky to offer his insights and analysis. And I should just say he's argued cases in front of the Supreme Court, and he has a lot of books, including the case against the Supreme Court and We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. Welcome, Erwin Chemerinsky, to Jacobin Radio. Great to talk with you. I just wish it was under better circumstances. Oh, God, me too. So let's just get right to it about this nominee and the likely effects that it's going to have on the president and the Senate elections. Can you tell us something about her? She's very conservative. There is no one on the federal bench more conservative than Amy Coney Barrett. She's the person that the far right wing wanted President Trump to nominate. And he pleased his political base by doing so. So if you think of the most conservative justice who have served in our lifetime, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, that's who Amy Coney Barrett is. Wow. And okay, so now I guess I should jump right to it. What do you think the fallout is going to be of the Republicans making this kind of an appointment and this close to the election? Will it, for example, perhaps motivate Democrats? Like, of course, I, I know you can't look into the crystal ball and know how people are going to vote, but let's hear what you think. I don't know what the effect is going to be on the November 3rd election. On the one hand, I would hope that people would be outraged at the stunning hypocrisy of the Republicans in the Senate and would hold it against them on November 3rd. And it would help Joe Biden. It would help Senate Democrats who are challenging incumbent Senate Republicans. On the other hand, I worry. I worry that every day the headlines of the news are about Amy Coney Barrett is another day that the headlines aren't about the pandemic and the economic depression. I worry that this lets President Trump seem presidential and that this gives President Trump something to appeal to his base. We won't know for over five weeks as to how this all plays out in the election. I have those same worries. And of course, Unfortunately, it was very unfortunate that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died just at this time when it looked like COVID-19 was and deserved to be the main story, as well as the refusal to extend benefits to the population who are really suffering. But given that that's what's going on, let me ask you another question about Amy Coney Barrett, and that's with regard to the Affordable Health Care Act. And that's a case, as, as you can probably explain to our listeners, is coming before the court. And should she be confirmed in time? What can we expect? In 2012, the Supreme Court, five to four, upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Chief Justice Roberts joined, wrote for the court, joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan. The result of this is that there's about 25 million people in this country who have health insurance who otherwise would not have health insurance. There's a case that's going to be argued in the Supreme Court the week after the election, where again, there's a constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Justice Ginsburg won't be there. What about Amy Coney Barrett? Well, when the Supreme Court decided in 2012 to uphold the Affordable Care Act, then Professor Amy Coney Barrett was sharply critical of Chief Justice Roberts' decision. He said, there's every reason to believe that she would be potential fifth vote to invalidate the Affordable Care Act. 
leaving 25 million people without health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. On this other issue, I guess, that we've seen utter hypocrisy on, you know, the part of one after another Republican who are on record saying that they would not agree to, you know, confirming another judge close to an election. And and they said, Lindsey Graham and Grassley and others have said, hold us to this. And now they've made this specious argument that McConnell has made that, well, it's a divided government. It was a divided government and it's not now. i for one, scratch my head at that argument. I can't figure out what, what they're really saying. But what do you think of that? It's a true non sequitur. In 2016, McConnell said that in an election year, the people should decide who's going to replace the Supreme Court justice by who the people choose to be president. Many Republicans, such as Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, said the same thing. Let the newly elected president fill the seat on the Supreme Court. Now, of course, they're saying, we've got the power, we're going to fill the seat. The fact that then it was a Democratic president and a Republican Senate, and now it's a Republican president, Republican Senate, doesn't answer their argument that in an election year, we should let the people decide who's going to fill a seat on the Supreme Court. Right. And do you think, I mean, we've seen polls that the majority of the population thinks that this should not go ahead before the election. It's what, 38 days now before the election. Do you think that that will make any difference? I don't know. I hope so. Obviously, what President Trump believes is that if his base comes out and votes for him, he'll win. And so he's picked somebody for the Supreme Court who will appeal to his base. The question is, will the what, 58% of the people, what is it? It's Trump's approval rating is 42%. So that means 58% of the people disapprove. Will those 58% come out to the polls? Right. And that we'll have to see. But right now it looks like they will. And then, of course, that leads to other questions. But before we go there, I guess the real question is what can be done? And that is, you know, assuming that they're able to achieve this rock hard Republican, solid right wing, 6-3 majority, you have argued and proposed in in an op-ed and elsewhere that there's things that the Democrats can do, including expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And I have to just say, in watching her statement today, she said she was comfortable and used to being with the number nine. The reality is there's nothing the Democrats can do to block the Republicans from confirming Amy Coney Barrett. The Republicans eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations in 2017. But that doesn't mean that the Democrats need to or should practice unilateral disarmament. The number of justices on the Supreme Court is not set in the Constitution. It's set by federal law. Over the course of American history, it's ranged from five to ten. Nine is a historical accident. In the late 1860s, there was a terribly unpopular president, Andrew Johnson. The Senate didn't want him to fill a vacancy on the court. So Congress said the next time there's a vacancy, the seat will simply be eliminated. And it became nine. The Republicans have packed the court with how they blocked Merrick Garland. Now they're rushing Amy Coney Barrett to confirmation. The Democrats should respond by saying they simply want to restore balance to the court and offset these two seats. And I think they should increase it to 13 seats on the Supreme Court. And given that you you see the Republican senators saying that, you know, they want to get back to uh, justices who, who are not judicial activists. And 
I guess the question is whether or not this makes explicit the complete politicization of the court. The court is always politicized in the sense that the justices are ruling based on their ideology. And the conservative justices are every bit as much, if not more, activists than the liberal justices. Think, for example, of Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, one of the worst decisions of our lifetime. It was the five conservative justices declaring unconstitutional a federal law and overruling a seven-year-old precedent. Or think of Shelby County versus Holder, where the five conservative justices struck down a key provision of the Federal Voting Rights Act, and it leads to the disenfranchisement of so many voters of color. That's stunning judicial activism. It is, and I think you make your case very well in the book, um, The Case Against the Supreme Court, that historically looking at the cases that the only minority that the court consistently sides with is the business elite minority, not the individual, and whites, not blacks, and not women either. So I guess this is consistent with that. But also there was an op-ed in the New York Times this week by uh, Stephen Calabresi, who is a federalist, and he came up with a different way to counter, I guess, what you call this politicization and the fact that certain presidents get to nominate more Supreme Court justices than others by proposing an 18-year term that would be staggered with, I guess, each president getting to nominate in year one and year three someone. What do you think of that? I favor 18-year non-renewable terms. Thankfully, life expectancy is a lot longer than it was in 1787. I was only 36 years old then. Clarence Thomas was 43 years old when he was confirmed for the Supreme Court in 1991. If he remains a justice until he's 90 years old, the age was John Paul Stevens retired, he'll be a Supreme Court justice for 47 years. Elena Kagan, John Roberts were 50 when they were confirmed for the court. Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. She's going to be a justice long beyond my lifetime. That's too much power in a single person's hands for too long a period of time. Also, too much depends on accidents of history. Since 1960, we've had 32 years with Republican presidents and 28 years with Democratic presidents. But Republicans have nominated 15 justices to the court and Democrats only seven. That's just because of the accident when vacancies occur. The problem with 18-year term limits is I think it would take a constitutional amendment And I don't know if there's a constituency that will work hard enough to take care of it and to do it. It's also the case that the Republicans have not won the popular vote in any election since 1988. So I think 2004, you're right. (laughs) But only once since then, and to have that kind of, they already have so many advantages with the Electoral College and the Senate. And now this as well, that it's, it's not just lopsided. It's, you know, falling over. But okay, so, so you would be in favor, I guess, of both term limits and enlarging the court. Yes. And what about for the lower courts? Because as we've seen, Senator McConnell has used his whole term now just to nominate and to put in federal judges who are young and conservative. The number of judgeships in the Federal Court of Appeals and the Federal District Courts is also set by statute. And I think that there is a desperate need for more judges putting ideology completely to the side. And so assuming Joe Biden wins, 
and the Democrats take both houses of Congress, they should create a large number of additional federal court of appeals judgeships and district court judgeships. It will better take care of the business of the federal courts, but it will also restore ideological balance. And would they have to do that just through the Congress or is just that by a law statute? Just by a law. So it's doable. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's then get to the question of the Supreme Court of a disputed election. You've just written, I think, this week that they are putting their thumbs down on, in the case of Texas and Florida. But those perhaps are not great cases to look at what could happen. But we know that in 2000, uh, the Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore decided the election in favor of Bush. They stopped the count. And this time, Trump's already made clear that in the case that he doesn't win outright, he intends to stay in office by delegitimizing and circumstances circumventing the 2020 election results, first by alleging the existence of rampant fraud, which seems to be any ballot that's mailed in, and then asking legislators in battleground states where the Republicans have a legislative majority to bypass their popular vote and instead choose electors loyal to the Republicans and the sitting president. And in this case, the Supreme Court would presumably be appealed to as in Bush v. Gore. And I would love to hear your legal expertise and understanding of this. There's a lot there. Let me break it into three pieces. Okay. The first is what we've seen this year. And the op-ed you referred to from the New York Times points to what I regard as a very disturbing pattern that both in the lower courts and in several Supreme Court rulings, the Republican justices and Republican-appointed judges have all voted to restrict access to the ballots and limit absentee ballots, and the Democrats have been on the other side. I'm very troubled that the Republican-appointed judges and justices seem to have accepted President Trump's premise that less voting is better. They're not following the Constitution and the right to vote. The second is what role the Supreme Court might play after the November 3rd election. And the obvious answer is no one knows. If Joe Biden is the clear winner in enough states that he can win in the Electoral College, then there's not going to be meaningful litigation. It's not going to be decided by the Supreme Court. But if the election is close and in one or more states, that's what would determine the outcome of the Electoral College, there will be litigation and the Supreme Court will have to resolve it. One of the troubling things is that if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed before November 3rd, she'll be on the bench to decide whether the president who nominated her should stay in office. I would hope, but I have no optimism about it, that she would say she would accuse herself from such a matter. If it lines up like Bush versus Gore did on ideological lines, there's six justices appointed by Republicans, counting Amy Coney Barrett, only three appointed by Democrats. And then the third piece of it, which we really should focus on, is President Trump's statements this past week. They won't necessarily accept the results of the election, that if he believes that there's voter fraud, he's just going to anoint himself to stay in office. I never thought we would come to the point in the United States with even regard to there being a chance that an incumbent president who loses would choose to stay in office. We've seen that happen around the world, but they're not countries that think of themselves as democracies. I'm surprised that there's not more outrage at these statements by President Trump and his press secretary. But given that we've never seen it before, and also this would be the second time only, 
correct me if I'm wrong, that the Supreme Court would decide the result of an election. And it would have to be, I mean, would it not have to be pretty inconclusive results, not just saying that there's fraud because they're mail-in ballots? What would be the grounds? And, you know, given that the Supreme Court always, this is maybe a stupid question, I'm not a lawyer, but oftentimes the Supreme Court won't take up cases. Would it be possible for them to say, no, this has to be determined at the it's all speculation because we don't know what the legal issues will be. We don't know how important they'll be to resolving the election. In most elections, it doesn't come down to one or two states that are very close. I mean, what made 2000 unique is it was so close nationally, it all came down to one state. And in that state, the margin was about 350 votes. And our election system isn't good enough or precise enough for who really won when it's that close. So it was contested in the courts, and ultimately and unfortunately, the Supreme Court decided it in favor of George W. Bush. But is there, okay, this is outside of the uh, realm of the court, but could there be some sort of ruling that they would not be allowed to announce on the day of, just on the basis of the in-person votes, who won at that thing, but that they would have to wait until all the votes were counted? Who is the they in that statement? The reality is, the states give a running count as they're tabulating the votes. The media makes some pronouncement of who they think won the election. I'll never forget on election night in 2000, the media calling that Al Gore had been elected president, then changing their mind saying it was George W. Bush, and then saying they didn't know. So I'm not sure who it is we're talking about, but there's a real possibility that we won't know on election night because of the large number of absentee ballots cast in a year of a pandemic. There's a chance that in some states, Donald Trump might be ahead after the in-person votes are tabulated, only to lose the state after the absentee ballots are counted. And he's undoubtedly going to say that's fraud, but that's just the way the system works in counting absentee ballots. Right. So given all of that, I just wondered if you think there's any recourse, let's say that it is thrown to the courts and they once again decide. And even then, if the popular vote is counted and it's so lopsided, is there anything that can be done? And finally, just on that part of it that you said it's unprecedented that he would refuse to lead. There's no precedent, but what could be done there, too, should he lose? It's all speculating at this point. My hope would be that the Supreme Court would resolve it all in a fair manner, and whoever the Electoral College says is the president is the president. My hope would be if the Electoral College says it's Joe Biden, the Supreme Court would stand up to Donald Trump, hopefully even unanimously, and say the Electoral College has chosen the next president. But there are nightmare scenarios of Trump refusing to leave office, of the military and who they side with determining who's the next president of the United States. Again, we've seen it all in foreign countries. We just never thought it would happen here. Right. Well, just before you go, I'd like to finally return to Amy Coney Barrett because her nomination and probably probably be confirmed and we are going to be faced with that reality. And many people are talking about why does the Federalist Society get to pick all these people? And when did they become the arbiter of who was on the list? And then the is that many people are concerned about her extreme religious views. And I wonder if you see that as a you know, a sideshow, that that's not the key issue. The key is 
that she's very conservative. Now, it turns out her very conservative views also correspond with being a devout Catholic. So she is very against abortion rights. She's very against rights for gays and lesbians. But I wouldn't focus on it in terms of her religion. I would focus in terms of she has an ideology that's far out of the mainstream in American society. She should not be on the Supreme Court with views that conservative and out of the mainstream. Unfortunately, to answer your question, who lets the Federalist Society do this? Donald Trump and the right wing of the Republican Party. Okay, so any words of hope here? Talk to me on November 4th or November 5th. You know, I think if Joe Biden wins, if the Democrats take the Senate, if the Democrats keep the House, they then can expand the size of the Supreme Court. They can then take actions to try to remedy what we've seen happen. But I'll tell you, if Trump wins re-election, I fear for our democracy in a way that I never have before. I don't know that our democracy can survive four years of Donald Trump. I think we all share that. And I I hope, like you do, that there will be a very decisive victory by the Democrats for the Senate and for the presidency. And then I hope that you're their main advisor on how to fix the courts. <laughs> I doubt I will be, but I'm certainly always glad to express my opinion. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Professor and Dean of Berkeley Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, who is a very noted legal scholar and the author of many books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court. Erwin Chemerinsky, thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. My great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We have the ability to pull this off. We have the ability to change our community and to to change our country. But that does require truth. It, It requires this country and this city to acknowledge that black life has not mattered and that we are not as valued or valuable to our community. And that is just the truth. And certainly there are exceptions for people like me who have seemingly made it. But the minute I walk into a room and people don't know who I am, don't know the title that I walk in with, or the, the degrees that I have earned, I am reminded that I, too, am just another one who is not valued. And so we have to do more than talking about that. We have to really engage in things that help us to change this city, to be what we can be. And, and, I, and I think it's also important to say police reform, I mean— We have to have consequences when people don't follow the the rules that they make up. When the Constitution is not applied in the same ways, there have to be consequences. There will be no reform until you have consequences. And that's what we have not seen. And again, we are being failed. And I I, I want this city to, to grieve I know that those protesters are grieving. They have spent so much time. They have fought so hard for justice. And I want this police department and this mayor. And I want that U.S. attorney who called in additional resources. I want them to call people back and let this city grieve. Let people mourn. This is hard. We are tired and we have been tired for a long time. This is not new. This injustice is not new to us. In fact, we have become conditioned for injustice. 
And what you see now is protesters saying no more. We are always going to raise our voices. We are always going to push for change. We are not going to leave this country and this city in the same way that we have inherited it. We want it to be better. I have two little girls. I want my work to be done before I leave this planet. And I'm starting here in Louisville. So we deserve something that we did not get today. We did not get justice. We did not get justice. And I, and, and believe me, there are many protesters who understood all three of those officers probably wouldn't be indicted. But we want to know about the warrant. We want the details of the warrant because we have been hearing all along, we heard from the postal inspector that there were issues with that warrant. We want to know the details. We deserve that. Powerful words, very moving and emotional in reaction to the Breonna Taylor indictment from the Louisville Urban League president, Sadika Reynolds. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And we're going to look at the Breonna Taylor grand jury decision in this segment that came out earlier this week. And the decision was not to charge the three police officers who were operating on a no-knock search warrant. They killed Breonna Taylor as she slept in her own home. One of the officers received a minor charge of wanton endangerment for firing recklessly when he was still outside the apartment, putting a neighboring apartment at risk. So the bullet that missed mattered more than the bullets that killed Breonna Taylor asleep in her own bed. Protests have erupted in Louisville and across the country demanding justice. And we are so fortunate to be able to talk to Cynthia Gannot, who's a sociologist at the University of Louisville, who has participated in the 100 122 days of nonviolent protest in Louisville to get a sense of what's happening on the ground. Welcome, Cynthia Gannot, to Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. Thanks. And I'm going to just say that you are now an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, and Cynthia studies American life at the intersections of systemic racism, patriarchy, heterosexism and class oppression. And her research is in the ways that people micro resist in the face of microaggressions, which goes hand in hand with the macro resistance in the streets right now. So that makes you more or less in the right place at the right time, Cynthia. And I know you just got back from today's protest. And so maybe we should just ask you what happened today. And then I want to go into the background of everything that has happened. But but how was it today? You know, earlier in the day at what's been renamed Injustice Square, it's the real kind of center of activity or home base for protesters here in Louisville. This is the kind of metro city square where City Hall, the Hall of Justice, the Department of Corrections, you know, all those kinds of buildings are all around it. And so that has been the center of protest. Earlier today, there were many, many protesters in and out, people giving speeches, people doing marches, people chanting. This is the kind of thing that you've been able to find there, waxing and waning certainly over the 122 days, but it's absolutely back in full force again at this moment after the grand jury decision handed down. One of the things that was happening today, though, that was a bit unusual was we now have, as I walked into the square, different folks told me, watch out, there are three percenters in there. Um, Do you know of the group, Mm. the three percenters? No, what is that? They're 
a far right, they're considered a far right hate group. Uh, And so they are a far right militia, a paramilitary and a woman kind of a block or so away as I was walking to the square said, watch out. She showed me a picture of a guy and said, he's taking pictures of all kinds of protesters. And then she also said, black Israelites have set up at a particular corner. So at this moment, when we've had white militia out at different moments, but in this particular moment where you have three percenters, you have black Israelites and you have LMPD, our Louisville Metropolitan Police Department in riot gear. The National Guard is right there. State troopers are right there. It is kind of an unbelievable environment. I'm going to ask you to go into that a little bit more, but I wanted just for our listeners, because we're so far away, not only to thank you for that sense of what's on the ground right now, but also just, you know, were people surprised by the decision that came out earlier this week in which, you know, the grand jury decided not to bring charges against the police who shot Breonna Taylor. And I know we have a very powerful statement from her mother on Friday who said she wasn't surprised, but maybe you could just give us a sense of the sort of response, you know, in so many parts of the world, people are at the same time stunned and not surprised. So describe how it was there. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Susie. Were we surprised? No, not necessarily, but it still packs a horrific punch. The idea that the officers might get off off scot-free was very much present, not only with protesters, of course, I don't know, uh, Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother, but she certainly, she's spoken out many, many times. She would come out to many protests. And then with her statement, she said she's not surprised, but the collective of us, I would say, were so, felt so slapped in the face by wanton endangerment charges, which when they were first announced on the television, first announced, friends and I compared notes and said, we actually screamed and are they not actually going to get off scot-free? Then we learned the nuances. The wanton endangerment charges for Brett Hankison were for the bullets he fired into the neighboring apartment. So for the next door neighbor's To have more justice than Breonna Taylor got is a slap in the face that was not what we were quite expecting. Before we go to more on the grand jury, I think just could you explain to the listeners what happened that night? Why were the police there? Just explain the circumstances. Absolutely. So there was a new policing model that had been implemented called place-based policing. And this was something that had been recommended by a professor at the University of Cincinnati that's about taking a micro-targeting when they are looking at, in particular, this was a narcotics case. And the the idea of place-based policing is about micro-targeting both the place where they thought that the drugs, that was more the kind of track house, if you will, but also trying to target in in a very precise manner everyone that might be associated and all the locations that might be associated. Brianna Taylor's ex-boyfriend, who she had blocked from her phone, 
who she had said, you know, 2020 is my year. She had a new boyfriend. She had a new lease on life. She wanted to go back to school, to nursing school. She had a focus of this is the year that I buy a home. Her life had moved forward. But in fact, the place-based policing had been targeting, unbeknownst to her, of course, targeting her home as they believed that her ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus Glover, who was already in custody by the night of the no-knock warrant, He was already in custody and they knew that well, but they believed that he was receiving packages there and believed that there might be drugs and or that he might have money there in some way. And so they had been targeting her and surveilling her location for some time. They had a warrant. And there are a lot of questions about how the warrant was obtained. One basis said that a postal inspector had confirmed that Jamarcus Glover was receiving packages at Brianna Taylor's place. The other postal inspector here in Louisville said, absolutely not. We looked into it and that is not true. So there are all kinds of questions about that. And so what police who had surveilled the situation did not know was that Brianna Taylor didn't live alone. She lived with a younger sister. Thank God her younger sister wasn't there at the time or she might have lost her life as well. Or that a two-year-old goddaughter who stayed at their home often, every week, you know, for a day or two, often stayed there. So they had not um, gotten those details. They had not realized she had a new boyfriend. She had blocked the old boyfriend from her phone. And so that's the context in which this no-knock warrant was undertaken. And is it the case that the no-knock warrant, which has been contested, is still in place or was it already being withdrawn or is it still being used in Kentucky? Well, in Louisville, in June, uh, the Louisville Metro Council passed a ban on no-knock warrants. Thank goodness. So we luckily have that ban in, in Louisville, but not in Kentucky. And so in fact, Kentucky's only Black female lawmaker, Attica Scott, has proposed a bill called Brianna's Law that would ban all no-knock warrants. And it also has some other pieces to it about how warrants are obtained, under what circumstances, who should, under what circumstance does anyone ever need to use a no-knock warrant? That obviously this bill would ban that entirely. I mean, it's kind of ironic, too, that it's sort of like no knock meet stand your ground, whereas in Florida, it's okay to kill somebody if you feel that your home or your life is in danger. But in Kentucky, when someone shoots into an apartment and her boyfriend was frightened, didn't know what was going on and shot back, thought maybe drug dealers were coming in, Mm -hmm. then, you know, they have the right to kill everybody. I mean, yeah. In Kentucky, it's called the Castle Doctrine, uh, that you can protect your castle. And the idea then, you know, Brianna Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, goes by Kenny Walker, they had watched a movie and been playing Uno. Kenny says that she had fallen asleep. Brianna was asleep. Movie was still on. She wasn't watching it. And he said that they actually did knock. They knocked really loudly, but didn't announce. And he said that Brianna startled got up in her bed, screamed, who is it? No answer. They knock again. She screams again, who is it? No answer. 
she does it, I believe, a third time. And when they started the battering ram, they were beating down the door when he, a legal gun owner, who absolutely thought it was a, a home invasion, when he shot once upon the door being beaten down, that's the moment when, according to the grand jury decision, that's the moment when, because police were shot upon, they could shoot back. But I have many questions. Miles Cosgrove, who fired the shot that, as we now know, as of Wednesday, that's the one that killed Breonna Taylor. He shot, I believe, 16 times, 16 times an unarmed person. And I heard Kimberly Crenshaw speak the other day. She said, any of you who stand there and pretend like you're making 16 shots, the amount of time and effort it takes to shoot 16 times. The question for so many is, how was that justified? Yes, there was one shot fired because Kenny Walker believed it was a home invasion. And then the amount of force that was returned, not just by Miles Cosgrove fired 16 times, John Mattingly, who's the one who got shot in the leg by Kenny Walker's bullet. I think that was confirmed Wednesday. Still questions about that. But he shot multiple times. And then Brett Hankison went to the side of the home and shot through the glass doors, the sliding glass doors where all the blinds were down. He couldn't even see if a human was there. So kind of force that was returned from that one shot from a man who thought that they were receiving a home invasion. The question is, when is that actually justified? Right. Okay. So let me just ask you, I I saw something in the Courier Journal that is pretty curious. And I need to ask you about this before we go back to talking about the grand jury, which is the real issue at this point. But it says the place-based investigation squad that killed Taylor was being deployed to clean out Elliott Avenue for vision Russell gentrification. And Taylor's death in this instance then is folded into the kind of serial force displacement, as social psychologist Mindy Fulove writes, that characterizes the history of nearly every Black community in America. So in this sense, you know, her murder isn't a bug in the system. It is the system. Can Uh you first comment on whether or not that's the case that they're gentrifying and that's why this area was targeted and you know what else can you tell us about this well Susie like you you know I read this allegation uh, long after Brianna Taylor was murdered actually as a Louisvillian I didn't know about this effort on that particular street of course I know of gentrification efforts in Louisville but this particular effort I had no idea that that was linked to Brianna Taylor's case until her attorneys as well as other journalists made that plain and so it that is a that is an additional layer that is shocking disgusting brings in an additional layer of how the system has failed another black woman who she was not a suspect of any sort this isn't this was not a case against Brianna Taylor. This was about trying to get extra evidence on her ex-boyfriend who was already in custody. And so how you even come to someone's home after midnight and have obtained a no-knock warrant. So the idea that having 
even having a search warrant for a location after midnight that was obtained to be a no-knock warrant on a woman who was not part of the case. They were just trying to find additional evidence on Jamarcus Glover, her ex who they had in custody, as you said. Who they had in custody. And then they tried to make a plea deal with Jamarcus Glover, who would not accept it. They tried to make a plea deal with him to say that, in fact, Breonna Taylor was involved. And he said, absolutely not. They had no reason and no right to go to her house. And he did not accept that plea agreement. So, Cynthia Gnote, this takes us right back then to the decision this week from the grand jury that decided not to prosecute or not to charge with homicide these police officers. And there was an article in the New York Times on the front page that basically said that the police force in Louisville was not only under heat, but was completely at odds with the community, almost like a rogue police force. And then, you know, there's a lot of heat, especially on the attorney general, Daniel Cameron, who has been advising the grand jury. So I think for our listeners here, tell us about the grand jury and tell us about Daniel Cameron. Who is he? Oh, boy. So what we know here in Kentucky and what I think others are really starting to know around the nation Daniel Cameron is Mitch McConnell's man. He's Mitch's man. Yep. And so he was first at the University of Louisville, a McConnell scholar. Mitch McConnell has a big program where he provides scholarships for students. It is honestly, it is shocking to see the banner that says McConnell scholars at the University of Louisville. He, it is a fact. He gives a ton of money and Daniel Cameron... Yeah, that's right. Oh, he's got the money. And we know those ill-gotten gains are, he's he's been bringing those in for years. So he met Daniel Cameron, I understand, as an undergraduate McConnell scholar at the University of Louisville. Cameron went on to University of Louisville Law School, which is Mitch's alma mater. And then he went on to be Mitch's legal counsel. When he was propped up as the candidate for Kentucky Attorney General, he had, and we knew well, very little experience. He has, I understand, no trial experience whatsoever. He was Mitch's hand-picked man. He won a resounding, um, he won in resounding numbers in the election, and that was very shocking for someone who had extremely little experience. What we knew was he was Mitch's man and that he takes his orders from Mitch McConnell and that when it became his case, when the Louisville office decided to hand it to the Kentucky AG, we knew, oh my word, it's now actually in Mitch's purview. In the grand jury process, many I understand that this is the saying that you could indict a ham sandwich, that depending on which facts are given, simply getting an indictment and then, of course, a movement forward to a trial, that is not a difficult task with a grand jury, which is my understanding from experts. Now, What Daniel Cameron did on Wednesday, what we knew was he's Mitch's man, but of course he has delayed this for this many months. We did not know what he was going to present 
truly had no idea exactly what he was going to present, except what we feared he would present, which was that the officers would get off scot-free. So when he presented, by the end of it, we realized he sounded like a criminal defense attorney. He sounded like the attorneys for LMPD. He presented in a way that did not take into consideration how the search warrant was uh, obtained. That was absolutely outside of the purview, he said. He went forward with, from the exact moment of plainclothes officers showing up, plainclothes narcotics officers showing up at Brianna Taylor's apartment after midnight on that night. And he took it from there and used the frame of, they were fired upon. Of course, they have the right to then fire back. There was no question of, was the level of force used justified? There was nothing of the sort. And so it was quite literally, it was something that you would normally hear from defense for LMPD. When we received the decision from Daniel Cameron, we were surprised, but not surprised. What we feared was that he would follow not only the line of Mitch McConnell's type of thinking, but that also, in fact, we feared that the decision would reify white supremacy and would reify the state sanctioned force that LMPD had. And and of course, other forces around the country, LMPD has been exercising over protesters in this city, we feared that the kind of force that is often used against black and brown communities would be reified. In fact, many have said, hearing this from a black man, uh, Daniel Cameron is a black man, and that hearing that from a black man who reified that brought for some an additional level of anger. What we know is he does Mitch's bidding. He very much wants power and to keep the power structure that is in place in place. Well, in the remaining minutes, Cynthia Ganote, is it possible to still bring charges? And I know that in the context of daily protests that are peaceful, And a cause that has galvanized public opinion the world over. Everybody knows her name and says her name, Breonna Taylor. And in the wake of, you know, one after another killing of black and brown people over, well, a very long time, but now brought to light since the uh, murder of George Floyd, there's a different atmosphere on the streets in the people and they're demanding justice. So one, do you think they will be forced to release the transcript? And two, do you think that uh, it's still possible to bring charges? Well, you know, there has already been a civil case in which Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother, received a record $12 million settlement along with police reforms that were agreed upon by the city of Louisville. That is not justice. Absolutely. Tamika Palmer has made that extremely clear. But you also have to take that as Does the city settle when there's quite literally nothing to hide? No, 
Of course not. So that piece has happened. Now this piece has happened. There is still an FBI investigation. There is an inquiry into how the search warrant was obtained. There are still pieces that are moving forward with the law. What I see as a sociologist that you've just pointed to, Susie, is the number of people, not just in Louisville, Kentucky, but all over the nation who have said enough is enough. In Louisville, people have made it clear, if we don't have justice, you won't have peace, LMPD. Protesters are together. It is like family. People often talk about being a family. Waters and food are handed out. People constantly, before we go on a march, say, you put an X up in the air and that means medic is needed. People are on call for evac, whether somebody needs medical attention or just there's a police situation where protesters need to be evac'd out. The level of organization of the churches, particularly some of the Unitarian churches, but many other kinds of churches that are around the Injustice Square here have organized, the people have organized, and are taking care of each other. And so for those of us who say, that's it, no more, we see you, I think those atrocities have been made more plain. They were always there. They've been made more plain to more people who now absolutely will not go back to this kind of justification of force and will, there is no way to return. So Susie, I see hope in that, even in the middle of the anguish over the Breonna Taylor decision. I have another final question about that, and that is whether or not there's efforts on the ground in these peaceful protests uh, every single night and in general in Kentucky to translate some of this anger into action at the ballot box as well as on the street, because there's a very important election happening in about a month. And of course, Mitch McConnell is apparently in battle, but not as much as, you know, the ads asking for my <laughs> for me to contribute uh, say so. So um, is there an effort, though, to get people to vote? And is that being part of the conversation? Absolutely. So we in Kentucky, so I live in Louisville and folks in Louisville and Lexington and other blue cities in the state of Kentucky, which has voted very red, ruby red, as it's called in recent years, we know well that we are absolutely going after Mitch's seat. There's zero doubt. We are going after it. There are huge voter registration campaigns. There's huge phone banking. There's huge phone banking to those who formerly had felony convictions, who have served their time, whose voting rights have been reinstated. But guess what? Many of them did not know that their voting rights had been reinstated through executive order by our Governor Andy Bashir. So there is a huge Voting campaign, zero doubt. We also understand nationally we have to flip the Senate. We have to in case Mitch's dark money that has poured in from places mostly not Kentucky, from the coal industry, from all kinds of venture capitalists, energy folks, coal folks, the money 
in the multi-millions that comes to Mitch to keep him in place because of what we know he props up in our nation. It is so serious. So we know what we're fighting against. We know the dark money that Mitch takes in. We hope to God we can defeat him. And we're also fighting so hard to flip the Senate to turn the presidency, of course, to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to where we can take Mitch out of power through the ballot box. So I promise you, we are on the front lines from months ago until the day of the election. And so any ways in anyone in which anyone can help with that get out the vote effort, not just in Kentucky, but all over will help all of us. Cynthia Gnod, I can't thank you enough for all of that. Very complete understanding of what's happening on the ground and where do we go from here, which is the most important question. I also want to thank you for staying up late after being protesting for, what, 122 days? And it's very good to, to speak with you. Cynthia Gnod teaches at in the sociology department at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, and she studies American life at the intersections of systemic racism, patriarchy, heterosexism, and class oppression. And her current research, which really is important for what's going on right now, is to look at the ways that people micro-resist in the face of microaggressions. And that goes hand-in-hand with the macro-resistance in the streets right now. And finally, watch out for those three percenters. Cynthia Gnote, thanks so much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much, Susie. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.